Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. They offer just about every battery under the sun, from car and truck batteries to batteries for your trail cameras and rangefinders. Select retail locations even offer cell phone repair and cracked screen repair. Find a local retail location at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Vortex Optics. Mic check. Here we go. (laughs) Uh, Straight up, this episode is another one of those ridiculous episodes. Um, How do I start this? I'll start it by saying this. Have you ever matched up Dark Side of the Moon album from Pink Floyd with The Wizard of Oz. Have you ever taken a Led Zeppelin, I I don't know what album it was, but if you play it backwards, you can actually hear uh, like the devil talk or something like that. Have you ever um, heard of the urban legend where if you watch uh, Tom Cruise do his thing as an actor from the 1980s, whether that's Top Gun, whether that's Cocktail, whether that's uh, Risky Business, you're actually going to become better, better educated as a whitetail hunter, specifically big, mature, giant whitetails, big, mature bucks. Um, and if you believe that, you're a dumbass right? So hold on to your buttholes, ladies and gentlemen, because we have another excellent episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles today. And uh, once again, we are joined by Tony Peterson. I'll be completely honest with you. I don't know why he keeps uh, coming on as a guest. Like he could literally just tell me no uh, and, and not do these anymore, but he continues to come on and, uh, He's actually the reason why these podcasts are, are performing so well. And I'll be completely honest with you. Uh, we've done Predator, right? The movie Predator. We've done, um, what was the first movie? Uh, Point Break. So we've done Point Break. We've done Predator. And now we're doing three. Yes, that's right. Three uh, Tom Cruise movies from the 80s in one episode of this Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. And it's actually the most professional out of the three uh, episodes that I've done with Tony so far. So you actually, there is a chance you might learn a thing or two on this episode. But if you actually go and I say the word actually a lot, regardless of how much I say that, if you go watch Risky Business, you're going to be able to, to... turn that knowledge from that movie into whitetail strategy if you watch top gun you're definitely going to be able to uh take what you've seen in in that movie and turn it into whitetail strategy and uh risky business the no the movie cocktail and the same the same way right so i i didn't realize it until i really sat down and focused on these movies that there was this underlying deeply ingrained theme of hunting mature whitetails so um i don't know we talk about that on today's episode (laughs) so uh i don't know what to say i'm trying to make this really exciting and it's actually a really good episode believe it or not and i really think that you guys should uh, share this with all of your friends because 
uh, like I mentioned in uh, to Tony, and I don't know if it was this episode or another episode, like I just get so like, I understand that if I want good analytics, I have to talk about how to hunt the rut. Here's seven tips to hunt the rut. But I also know that I have way more fun when I take a ridiculous concept like comparing 80s movies to whitetail hunting strategy. I actually have a lot more fun doing that. And I hope it shows in uh, in this in these episodes. So Tony Peterson's the guest today. We talk about whitetails. We talk about Tom Cruise. And we have a lot of fun doing it. So I hope you guys are enjoying these episodes before I get into today's episode, please be sure to uh, check out, uh, subscribe to the Nine Finger Chronicles on YouTube or wherever you download uh, your podcast. Be sure to follow on Instagram, Nine Finger Chronicles on Instagram and Facebook and comment on everything that I do. Whether I don't know, whatever. Do what you want, right? If you want to go to the grocery store and make a potato salad sandwich, do that too. Because I love, for some reason, I love potato salad but I treat it almost like tuna salad or chicken salad and I'll make a sandwich out of it. So I have a potato salad sandwich. I don't know if a lot of people do that. They're delicious. So we're going to do some quick, really quick uh, uh, commercials here. Huntstand.com. Huntstand is a, a hunting app that you can that you have on your phone and it allows you to do a whole bunch of different things. So here's how what I'm doing right now while I'm in the season, whether I'm e-scouting new hunting locations or I'm looking up landowners to knock on their door and gain access. But right now I'm cataloging. And what I mean by that is I'm leaving waypoints every time I find a scrape or a rub or I set a trail camera or I have a sighting or I have a tree stand. And all that information is like a, uh, a journal. And I can look back at my journal, all this information that I've documented, and I can say to myself, all right, this is a line. I'm taking all these lines. I'm, I'm putting together a, a, um, a hypothesis or a guesstimate on where deer movement's going to be. And I use that journal and that information to make the best possible move. So technically, I'm kind of forecasting deer movement based off of all the information that I have. And uh, I'm just hoping that it aligns with my goals um, of whatever deer I'm trying to uh, kill by the end of the year, right? So uh, that's how I'm using HuntStand. Tons of great functionality. It's only like 40 bucks for a whole year. So go to... Um, you know, you can go to huntstand.com, check out all of the information about uh, about this app, uh, all the robust functionality as well. So uh, um, I'm telling you right now, it's uh, there's a lot of awesome functionality, huntstand.com, or you can go to the uh, wherever you download your apps and download it there. Vortex Optics, these guys are the title sponsor of um, of this podcast, and they are they're badass, right? Awesome products, awesome people. And uh, these guys are really trying to make a difference, not only in the hunting industry, but in the hunting community as well. And it shows not and, and not just the, the hunting community, but the firearms community as well. So um, without getting into too much crazy detail, if you're looking for a very high quality uh, optic at an affordable price, check out vortexoptics.com. They have range finders. They have spotting scopes. They have uh, let's see, range finder spotting scopes. Um, uh, red dots, rifle scopes, binoculars, any optic really you need, they have it. Go check them out. Vortexoptics.com. And then lastly, I don't know why I get so geeked out about a broadhead, but uh, Vortex Optics, 
Uh, I had one guy, he's like, oh, these broadheads kill shit dead. And you know what? They do. You, uh, whether it is a, a, you drill them right through the heart or it's a marginal shot, let's say, liver, uh, a bad angle, you know, or you just, you yourself take a shitty shot. Uh, their broadheads do a ton of damage. They have great penetration. And what I'll say is that marginal shots leave giant blood trails and the more a deer bleeds and the more damage your broadhead does to the animal, the more likely you are to recover it, whether it's a, um, an awesome shot or a shitty shot. Uh, and those shitty shots do happen. If you do want to find out more information about their mechanicals and their fixed blades, go to wasparchery.com. And I have a, I don't know why I'm never prepared for this. Here it is. I have a discount code for wasp and that is... The discount code, it's a long one, nine, the number nine, fingers 2021. Nine fingers 2021. And that's going to save you 20% off of your purchase. Get your broadheads ordered now. Now, poured out. Excellent episode. So without further ado, let's get into today's podcast with returning guest and friend of the Nine Finger Chronicles, Tony Peterson. Three, two, one. All right. Once again, Mr. Tony Peterson, how we doing, man? I'm doing excellent, buddy. How are you? It's uh, I'm ha- I'm having a very good week so far. It's only it's only Monday, but it's exceptional. It's an exceptional Monday because I know that uh, I'm heading out west on Friday to South Dakota to try to uh, once again try to kill a mule deer. Ah, you're yeah. going to get a little redemption after Nebraska, huh? Well, after Nebraska and then three other trips out to South Dakota the previous two years. So the, <laughs> the redemption list is, is, it's kind of long. Have you, on your mule deer trips, are you always just spotting and stalking? For the most part, um, what I'll do is I'll, I'll try to find a group of mule deer and then just, if, if one's bedded, I'll obviously go try to stalk it. But yep. if they're on their feet, I'll try to catch them in a pattern and then just get closer or in that same drainage or same draw the next morning or the next afternoon and play that game with them as well. So yep. it, it's kind of hit and miss. Sometimes it's spot and stock. Sometimes it's wait for them to come back the next morning or, or to come out of the draw the, the following afternoon. But I'm, I'm pretty aggressive. You know, I'm, I'm covering a lot of ground. I'm trying to glass and then I'm, I'm going in on whatever I see. Yeah. Do you, do you find, cause you're hunting the areas that you're hunting look like a lot of the places I've hunted mule deer Yeah, and it's just so different than typical mule deer advice where you really do have to kind of, you know, not like fully throw caution to the wind, but you got to cover some ground. Yeah. And if you do that enough, sometimes you do pick one up that's bedded in the next draw over yep. that gives you your chance, but it's not like a typical, you know, find a glassing spot, watch them, watch them, watch them when they bed, you know, check the wind, make sure you can get in there, check the cattle next door or whatever, yeah. and then, and then go for it if it's right. Is that kind of how you're doing it? Yeah. For the most part. Yeah. And it may seem real aggressive, but the guy that I, um, who the first guy to ever reach out to me and said, Hey Dan, you need to go to South Dakota. You need to try South Dakota. So I've been in communication with him a lot and, and he's right when he says this, if you screw up on that deer, just go find another one. And that's all day long is you're just 
you if you bump one or you screw up on on the stock you just go find the next one and you go find the next one so that's how i i have currently approached the the mule deer hunting out there is because i i can't scout so i don't know where deer are uh, at any given moment so it's all information that i'm gaining with my eyes at that moment yeah so Yeah, I don't know, man. We'll give her a try. The temps are supposed to, I'm going three weeks later than what I normally do to try to catch some cooler temps and some um, potential, maybe some potential pre-rut activity. They'll be on their feet, hopefully, a little bit more. Um, so I'm hoping all those things kind of add up to more more deer movement. Yeah, it, it should. I mean, yeah. it, you're kind of going, and my favorite time to mule deer hunt is – you know, you, you're kind of slipping in there when people are just not, you know, the opening day yeah. stuff's way gone. Yeah. The rut stuff's not there yet. And you've got the right temperatures to spend all day out there and, you know, yeah. camp when you're not miserable. I, I think you'll, I think you're going to have fun. Yeah. That's the goal. And, um, I don't know, man, we'll see what happens. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different of a, um, uh, a little bit different of a hunt. I'm actually bringing a camera guy along with me on this hunt and he's going to film the whole thing. So we'll see what kind of curveball that plays into it. You know, I'm not looking to, you know, make any type of groundbreaking cinematography uh, out there, just document what I've been doing for the last three years out there. And uh, if we get the shot on camera, we get it. But if we get one of those, Hey, he's on the next Ridge and he catches me, you know, stalking down into something and we make it happen that way. I'm not, I'll tell you this. I'm not, I'm not giving up an opportunity because it's going to not be on camera. Yeah. Do you have, uh, or do, do you have, or does your cameraman have one of those kind of like be the decoy hats or some kind of small, uh, decoy of some sort? Um, I think he's got a, uh, I think he's got one of those, um, uh, handheld, like, oh, it's, it's almost like a Montana decoy. It's real light. Yep. It's almost like a tent type material, but that's printed with a mule there. Yeah. So, yep. okay. Yeah. Cause it, I, when I was back, when I was hunting South Dakota quite a bit for mule deer, I bought one of those, you know, mule deer hat things that you put on. Yeah. And I think it, it was like, okay for hunting certain situations. I kind of felt like it gave you a little bit of edge. Yeah. It, it didn't really feel like it was worth carrying all the time. Yeah. But I think about, you know, a cameraman, you know, popping over the horizon to film you, even if they stay a ridge back, that might be, it might be a, a difference maker. I don't, I yeah. don't know, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned this, what was it this past weekend? Uh, you did a little dog training. I sure did. I, I did. Let me put it this way. I took my six month old puppy out on her first hunt. So oh, it was okay. mostly on the job training, uh, but it was freaking fun, man. Yeah. And that's what I hear. It's, it's, it's really fun to do, but at the same time, like I've never, I've never trained a dog. My uncle's trained a couple dogs. Um, and he said it can, it can be really frustrating to train a good bird dog, whether that's, you know, any type of upland or, or duck hunting or anything like that. Is that the case? Is it, is it something that's frustrating, equally parts frustrating and, and fun? It can be. I mean, yeah. it, you know, if you start with, I, I'm pretty into this stuff. So I start with really good bloodlines. Yeah. So basically I start with dogs that should know what they're doing out there. And, you know, you, you work on all the obedience training and all the hand signals and all that stuff that's not natural to them. And you hope that that stuff 
is is in place or you know mostly in place and then when you start hunting you're like okay now we kind of meld these two where these natural instincts will kick in if i put them in the right situation and that's like to me that's so fun because that's the process i'm in right now where that that puppy started out she didn't know anything yeah when we started on friday and then you know shot a couple woodcock shot a couple grouse and you see the thing start clicking yeah and you know bump a rabbit in front of her and call her off and you see you just see all these little training wins that you kind of can only get when you're out in the wild you know i mean you can do some stuff with planted birds but i don't really like to yeah i like to just i like to get out there where they're gonna hunt and then just work on some stuff and it was i i I freaking love it man you know I'm, i'm a dog guy anyway but i'll tell you what following dogs around the way i do all fall it it really feeds some of my bow hunting because it takes me to a lot of public land and it takes me to a lot of places i wouldn't walk in yeah if i didn't have like an ulterior motive to shoot a rooster or grouse or just see what the dog's sniffing over there i just it, it just i love it yeah i'll tell you this man um and i think their their two habitats overlap at some point, right? The bird habitat and the whitetail habitat obviously overlap at some points. But there was a um, a piece of property that back in the day I used to have a um, uh, permission to go out and hunt, and I would shed hunt it. And for some reason, the antlers just dropped in this CRP field. It was like uh, an eighty acre CRP field with sprinklings of little small trees grouped in it, and almost every single tree that was in that 80 acre crp field was destroyed right it had some kind of of rub on it how often are you finding that type of overlapped uh that overlapped habitat with that type of sign and it gets you excited enough to go back and actually try to hunt all the time yeah i mean that situation you're talking about there with that crp field how much time are those deer spending in there yeah. where not only are they rubbing up every tree that's in there, but they're, they're there through the late season to drop their antlers there. I mean, it just tells you the usage factor there is crazy high. Yeah. And yeah. you know, you think about it, you know, pheasants are really obvious, right? Like if you get into where pheasants live, deer live there. Yeah. It just, it just is the way it is. But with grouse and woodcock, you know, you're talking like big woods. A lot of the places I hunted this weekend, you're talking county land that's like tens of thousands of acres. And so, you know, I'm pulling up the satellite imagery and looking for soft edges where, you know, maybe a high woods meets a tamarack swamp or something, you know, water was kind of the key this weekend because it's been so dry this year. Yeah. And so, you know, it's kind of the same thing. You're like, okay, well, I'm going to look for these soft edges out here where I think the birds are going to be. And then you get in there and you're like, oh, well, deer edge critters too. And so when you start breaking down big woods, which is like, I think it's just a tougher task than most of the other kinds of deer hunting we do. It's, it's so similar, man. Like where the grouse live or, you know, where the woodcock are flying in right now to eat some worms, you get into those spots and you walk enough of them and you're like, here's a buck bedroom. And the amount of times that I found huge beds in swamps that are, you know, if you walk in, you might sink up into like your, your shins, you know, but it's like, there's place, there's little high ground islands and stuff. Yep. And those are, you know, those can be bird factories, but then you get in there and there's that sawgrass or that swamp grass and you find those beds and you're like, man. And it, you know, we were only on public land and the stuff you find when you're covering miles and miles a day following dogs around, you're just like, man, this is so, 
it's just so close. Yeah. Like there's like there's no difference between where the birds live and where the deer live, really. Yeah. And it it has me thinking when I'm out there on some of these big type areas, like how how much of this is actually pressured throughout a year, right? Because every I don't know, every public land hunter at some point has consumed some type of content that has said, Hey, listen, you got to go eight miles back and you got to go deeper than everybody else and, and things like that. But at the same time in that 80 acre CRP field, uh, I mean, there was granted, this was private ground, but there was in the ditch, there was rubs on trees. Yep. Right. <laughs> so how, how much, how much do you think certain pieces of, let's just say public in general, get overlooked because on a map, they're small. I I don't think there's a lot of parcels that get overlooked. I think there's a hell of a lot of places in all of the parcels that get overlooked. Like, so, and I'll use an example. I, I love to late season pheasant hunt. It's my favorite thing to do. Yeah. And so you're talking like cattail sloughs and the, the, the gnarliest cover you can get, which is usually cattails or maybe some plum thickets or th- something. Yeah. And I'm talking southwestern Minnesota here. So you don't have blocks of timber, right? Like that's the cover is those sloughs. And I'll go in there as soon as Minnesota's gun season is over, deer gun season is over. I'll go start hunting hard. And I, I had a situation probably three or four years ago. I walked into this chunk of public that I know gets hunted. Like I know that this was not an overlooked property. And I went to the first cattail slough that's just basically this lake that's ringed by cattails in there, the small prairie pothole lake. And I busted three bucks out of there in every plum thicket around that lake. I busted one buck out of each one. And we're talking like 120 to 140 inch bucks bedded on public the day after gun season in Minnesota ended. Yeah. And that's, you know, and those are big deer for down there. And you just look at that and go, I know people came out here and hunted this. They probably came out there and drove it, but those deer just have those places they like to lay. And if you get into the cattails, you see bucks all the time. And it usually, they don't get up until a dog's right on them. Otherwise they might let you go past, but it just makes you realize like you could look over this thing and go, there's not a deer in there. And when you get in and really start rooting around in there, they're in there. They just know how to hide. Yeah. And then you start thinking, okay, we'll take 80 acres of CRP that, that only you can hunt or only a few people can hunt. Like that's an awesome sanctuary for them to stay bedded in. Yep. Then, you know, ratchet it up further, go up to the big woods in some of these places or go down south to the swamps, you know, way down south. Like, man, their advantage is incredible in that cover. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it always it always surprises me. Right. And I heard, I heard a guy talk to, um, uh, talk about this, especially for states like Minnesota, Wisconsin, and I think it's Wisconsin and Michigan. When does, uh, Wisconsin rifle season kick in? Uh, usually like the, the right before Thanksgiving. Okay. So the rut is kind of tailing off at that point. Yep. Okay. Yep. I know, I know Minnesota and Michigan are those states where, uh, it's like middle of the rut is when their rifle season kicks in. So uh, Minnesota's is the first weekend of November. So yeah. you might be like November 3rd. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's a guy who brought this up and I, and I, and it's a great point. It's everybody wants to talk about Iowa 
and Iowa being the the greatest state for whitetails. And it's really only great because we don't have a gun season during the rut, right? Yep. We have, I think, I think six percent of our state is timber, right? There's something like that. It's real low. The rest of it is ag and um, like pasture for cattle and things like that. So, and that's south of Interstate 80 and then even shrink it down on the ends a little bit. I mean, granted, Iowa has deer in the northeast corner of the state and in the, along the Missouri and, and all that stuff. But you take, a, uh, you take uh, I don't know, that, that shotgun season or the rifle season out of that and you implement it into a state like Michigan or uh, Minnesota where they have way more cover than Iowa does. And I, th- I think that that is how you get bigger, better bucks in those states. Without question. Yeah. So it's, it's a huge contributor. Yeah. Yeah. And it, so it, so it surprises me, even though, you know, um, even though you said, oh, I saw 20, you know, 120, 140 class bucks, you know, some of those deer are sneaking through just by pure luck at some point. And, and it's not like in Iowa, that same story could have been, oh, dude, I, I found after the shotgun season, I found, you know, a 160 or a 170 uh, doing that, that same tactic. And it's because most of these deer are just getting hammered during the, uh, during the uh, shotgun or the, the rifle season. So I don't know, yep. man, it's just, uh, I don't know when people, when people complain or they say, hey, it must be nice to hunt in Iowa or, um, you know. Uh, I don't know well, one of the, or they bitch about not having big bucks. It's like, how, how bad do you want big bucks? Do you want big bucks enough to give up your rifle season during the rut? Because that's what you, that's what you need to do. Yeah. Well, and you know, I mean, I, I think it, of course people are jealous of Iowa. I was, yeah. Iowa is real fun to hunt. Yeah. But I, what I, what I like about, you know, doing what I do is I get to see that bucks of a great caliber they exist everywhere. And I know yeah. everybody says this, like, well, not where I live. Like, oh, you know, all the, yeah. you know, no, no bucks make it to two and a half or whatever. Like, man, they do. Like, I, almost everywhere you go, like you said, those bucks are slipping through and getting lucky. Yeah, they're getting lucky when they're a year and a half old because they don't know how to survive. But once they figure that out, yes. there's, there's no, like, the luck goes down, and, you know, and it's it becomes skill. And there's deer, you know, when I'm talking those bucks in southwestern Minnesota, you know, a 120 inch deer is a great deer. Yeah. Like if you, if you live in a state like this and you have a chance at that, especially on public land, that's an, like, that's an awesome accomplishment. Yeah. And people out there, like it, it doesn't do you any good if you live in a state, you know, that's not Iowa to be like, oh, you know, Iowa, oh, it sucks that those guys get such big, like who cares? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. like what do you, what do you have available to you? Exactly. Exactly. And that's, and, and that's where the whole, like, I don't know how many, it's like beating a dead horse at this point. You have to hunt what is the best caliber deer deer in your area and not be like, oh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hold off for a, a, you know, a four-year-old 140-incher this year. Well, good luck. Yep. You might be waiting for a while. You know what I mean? And then, but don't bitch about it. Well, that's that's where there, there's two things going on there that that hurt us, right? Like the advent of like, really cheap trail cameras that function pretty well has shown us that, yeah, these bucks are around. Yeah. Like, but you might just get one dude passing through, 
you know, the property you hunt every, you know, every once a month or something and be like, well, there's a 140 here. I'm going to hunt it. I'm like, well, like, do you really know what you have a shot at? Yeah. And I think, you know, that, that when you, when you spend a lot of time scouting, you spend a lot of time in the woods and like, you really start to figure stuff out. You go like, this is the kind of deer that would make me happy. And it's not, it's no longer like this idea of a certain class of deer would make me happy. It's like, here's what I actually have a shot at. So I'm going to go after this. And there's a difference there. You know, like yeah. we talk, you see this in the hunting industry all the time. And actually you see it just in the general hunting population too. Like, Oh, you know, I passed up a little 120 or there's a, I got a young 140. I'm letting go. Yeah. Like, Oh, okay. That's fine. But most people, that's not their reality. And like yes. I, when you hear that stuff and you internalize it, it does you no good. Like, what are you really dealing with where you hunt or where you're going to hunt? You know, yeah. if you're, if you're taking a, a little trip somewhere, like being, like being really clued into what's available and what your skill set's going to let you maybe have a chance at that stuff's important, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, you just last week you went to, or the week before you went to North Dakota. I sure did. And, <laughs> and it was, uh, very evident that where we were hunting had been pressured really hard. Okay. So I, I got up on a glassing point that I love out there. And this is this is one of my public spots I've spent a lot of time on. I just, I love this area. And I I found one group of whitetail, but I had an any deer tag, so I could shoot a mule deer or a whitetail. Yep. But I found one group of whitetails that was, there's four of them in there, like 100 to 130 inches. And then one random buck that looked like about 120, maybe 125 inches. And then one good mule deer. And all of them were just hugging the line. Like they were, they were living right where they could be on a private ranch in like eight hops, yeah. you know? So it was one of those deals where, where that group of bucks was, I was like, I'm going to save that those deer till I'm desperate because it, the odds of getting in there on them without bumping them were really, really low. So I was kind of looking at them like there may be pile stuff if I just get desperate and the mule deer, the big mule deer I had, he was, he was like kind of close to a, a tank that I, a cattle tank. And I thought maybe he, you know, might be a chance to, to arrow that dude coming in for a drink. And that other whitetail, that other decent whitetail was, was kind of in the same area. And so I built a plan around those two deer and I went in the first night after glassing and glassing and set up thinking maybe, and I had that, that big whitetail come in, thermals got me, busted me at 49 yards. I was sitting there, I was like, I'm going to kill a great buck the first night I hunt, you know? Yeah. D didn't happen. And then, then I'm like, okay, now the deer that I felt like I had a real chance at just caught a big whiff of me and spent about four minutes really figuring out right where I was sitting. So that wasn't good. And I never saw that mule deer and I kept seeing just does and does and does. And so one morning, uh, you know, a couple days into the trip, uh, I sat there and I saw 29 does and fawns, not a buck. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm, I'm putting one in the freezer. So I ended up shooting a doe and just getting out of there. But it was, it was fun. It was just evident that I had my timing. Yeah. I, I thought my timing was going to be really good and I did not have my timing right. I needed to give a little more of a cushion, away from the opener and all the craziness of the early September hunting. And next year it'll probably be like a mid October hunt when I go back. Yeah. Well, and 
what's awesome about what you just said was your expectations changed as the information came in and you're just like, yeah, you know, I'm going to go give these bucks a try. But once I go in, there's a chance where it's not going to work out. And then my goal may have to shift to just fill in the freezer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, I, people who know me know that I'm a, I like to eat venison and this was my first, you know, normally in September I've hunted elk and whitetails a whole bunch. And other than my little girls hunting, I hadn't hunted yet. And so I was like, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I do not want to eat this tag. Let me put it this way. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm not coming back. I know my schedule's not going to allow it. So I really, I, you know, and it, it was one of those things you go on a trip and you shoot a doe when you kind of like build it up in your head, like, man, I'm going to be around a bunch of big bucks. It kind of sucks, right? Like you're yeah. kind of a little let down, but by the time I'm like butchering that deer and packing it up for the freezer, like I lose that stuff. And I'm like, yeah. I'm, I'm happy with this. Exactly. Like, yeah. Would, would it be awesome to have that big rack? Sure. But it still feels good to go out, you know, kill a deer on public land and, you know, pack it out and do the whole, that, that whole process. Yeah. And you're right. Like, man, sometimes you go in with really high expectations and you, you get a freaking dose of reality fast. Yeah. And that's, that's one thing that I'm trying to get over is I, I hold off too long. And then, uh, I, I'm, I'm doing that thing where it's like, okay, first four, first four days of the hunt bucks only. All right. Not, <laughs> not getting close to bucks. Maybe let, let me, uh, let me open it up to a doe. Oh, finally I found a buck. Let's move in on this buck, pass up some does, right? Then yep. it's the last day of the hunt. And now it's like, okay, any deer's going to do. And then I just can't get close enough on that last day. And then I'm driving back to Iowa, you know, going, you might be the biggest dumbass I've ever met looking <laughs> at myself in the mirror. So, <laughs> Well, you know, I, I tell people this a lot and you've, you've got more experience than a lot of people from the Midwest do hunting mule deer. But when, when my buddies and I started hunting mule deer, we were just like any legal deer right. because we, you know, we were coming from tree stand hunting and just, you know, we just wanted to spot and stock and I didn't want to go out there and sit in, in glass all day. And one thing that I, I found out is if I stocked every legal deer, usually we'd be hunting together. So we'd switch off stocks, but a, it was a blast cause we got a bunch of stocks in, yep. but B it, it would work out sometimes where you'd kill a big one. Like it, that would just be the one you were stalking. And so, yeah, sometimes you'd kill a little four by four or something like that or a doe, but once in a while, you know, I had this happen in South Dakota, I don't know, six, seven years ago, I went out there with a buddy of mine and he's like, I want any deer. And I was like, you know, I kind of do too, but he'd never killed one. So he did the first stocks, killed a doe. And as we were like making plans to pack his deer out, I looked and there was a great buck bedded 400 yards away. And I worked around on him and ended up getting above him and killed that buck. And it's just, you know, like yeah. that's how that stuff can work sometimes, especially if you're just open to like, we're just going freaking hunting, man. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's going to be my mindset starting Friday is get in there. I don't care if the buck, the buck's going to be uh, legal. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to try to slip in there and get him and uh, yep. hopefully everything goes, goes well. Yeah. So, it'll, it'll be good, buddy. Yeah. All right. Now it's time. <laughs> okay. I got to say this without laughing. Now it's time for a hard pivot uh, to go into today's main topic, and uh, I'm going to kick this uh, this uh, portion of the episode off by asking you, who is one person that you think? Um, how do I how do I phrase this? Who's one person that you think um, 
may be completely underestimated uh, when it comes to their knowledge about whitetails? Huh. Underestimated. Yeah. We've now, made such heroes out of everybody. I, I know, but but knowing where this podcast is going, <laughs> okay, <laughs> answer, 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 still go ahead and answer the question, but just know where this podcast is going. So this, ha- this, are you looking for me to answer this with somebody who might have a name that people would know? Because that's a hard one. Because yeah. anybody who's kind of known, probably they're probably getting the credit they deserve, or they're over, they're overrated. Hmm. Overrated but, would be easier for yeah. me, but I don't really want to do that. <laughs> no, let's not do that. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I listen, man. I would say. This is going to be a weird answer. Okay. Maybe maybe a terrible answer. You you know who Randy Ulmer is, don't you? I do. Yes. Yeah. So Randy is, you know, he could be the best hunter in the country. Who knows? Yeah. He's he's freaking ranked. He's just like Eddie Claypool. He's yeah. unreal. And Randy has so so many giant mule deer and elk and western critters under his belt, and people are always like. You know, and, and he does outfitted hunts. He does do-it-yourself hunts. He does them all. Like, I, I know Randy pretty well. Like, he's he covers all the bases, man. But I've talked to Randy about whitetails, and nobody gives him any credit for that. And they're always like, oh, yeah, well, he goes and pays somebody to scout for him or whatever. You know, and, like, like he couldn't do this in the Northeast. He couldn't come kill a 100-inch buck. And I'm like, man, <laughs> that's probably the, the dumbest thing that could ever be said. I right. think you could put that guy anywhere and if you were like, here's the here's the the top end caliber buck that lives in this you know swampy region or this big Northwoods region or where you know you put him in Iowa wherever, I think he would kill him. Yeah, he's just got that mentality. He's he's unreal. I mean, yeah. I, I I remember getting uh, this is way off sidetrack here, but yeah. when I got hired by Peterson's Bow Hunting, my first dinner at ATA when I was like 26. I got seated next to Randy Elmer. I'm like, this has got to be a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't belong here. But I started talking to him. And, you know, and he had had one of those years where he killed, you know, three 220-inch mule deer or something like that. And one of them was a Colorado buck. And I just asked him about it. I was like, what's, you know, dude, what's the story? And he said, I don't know. He said, I found that buck, you know, just glassing. And then he said, I just, I just like it so much. He said, when I found that deer and I knew that was the one I wanted, I scouted him for 50 days in a row. And he kind of said that in passing. And then he said, you know, in the night before the season, I climbed up there and I slept above him and I came down on him and I just got lucky. And you're just like, what? <laughs> like you just, you just glossed over the fact that you climbed that mountain 50 days in 50 a row days. to watch that deer. Yeah. That's not luck at that point. No, no, no. All right. So I, I just think, I think he's one of the ones he gets a, you know, he obviously gets like a, a boatload of credit for being a badass hunter, yeah. but it's, it's Western stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Now. Knowing okay, so Randy Almer is is your uh, is your answer on that, but let me ask you a different question: Who do you think is one of the biggest movie stars from the nineteen eighties? <laughs> <laughs> well, can I cheat? Because I know who you want me to say. You can say it. Just say it. Yeah, Tom Cruise. There you go. And that today is what today's podcast is going to be. About. <laughs> so, hey Dan, before we get into this, yeah, can I ask you something? Yes, you I can. Feel like. Are, are your listeners like, hey, man, did uh, Dan Infault and Andy May and a bunch of other guys drive a bus off a cliff and die? And is Peterson the only <laughs> guy left? 
<laughs> no, I just don't ask them to do these kind of episodes. Because okay. I, I, like, when we when we first talked on one of the first episodes, it just kind of clicked. And then we bu- we were bullshitting a little bit afterwards. I go, you know what? Not only is this guy close to my age, or right at my age, he's also kind of a goofball, like I am, who understands that not every podcast has to be about, you know, let's talk about the October lull and how to have, here's 19 different ways to find success during the rut or blah, 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 blah. It's just like people, people like to hear that stuff. But at the same time, I feel like these conversations are a little bit of a breath of fresh air, especially with all of the content coming out at the same time about the same thing. You know what I mean? I know, buddy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. All right, so we're talking Tom Cruise pre-Scientology days? Oh, I think so. I don't even know when he found Scientology, and quite frankly, I don't care because he put out <laughs> <laughs> because he put out some banger movies uh, in the '80s, and um, so and every one of them in in uh, that I was thinking about directly relates to whitetail hunting strategy, and I'm gonna <laughs> and. I'm going to I'm going to name 3 movies and we're going to we're going to run through certain scenarios within these 3 movies and we are going to relate them to whitetail strategy. You down? I'm go for it, buddy. Okay. All right. So, we're going to talk about risky business. Uh something happens, there's some conflict and long story short, he has to turn his house into a whorehouse. Um uh, and then that's where that kind of movie goes. Second, Top Gun. He goes crazy for a little bit. He recovers, and now he's you know shooting Russians out of the air. Uh, and then cocktail. He has a dream, but then he like I feel like he wants to he he wants to own a bar, right? He wants to own his own bar, but I feel like it's right in front of him, but he can't see it's right in front of him. He he tries to go do all these other crazy things and become way big and and popular and all these things when his dream is right in front of him. Okay. Um, and we can relate that to whitetail hunting, but I'll let you, I'll let you pick the first movie that we talk about. Well, I just want to say that might've been the worst summary of Top Gun I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You didn't even mention jets or, you know, Oh yeah. yeah. (laughs) That it's, it's about, it's about, uh, flying in the air force and (laughs) yeah, that was horrible. I do apologize. So, I mean, there's a few major components of that movie we might want the audience to know about. Um, let's do uh, let's do risky business. First. Okay, risky business. All right. So um, uh, he uh, let's see. Here's how this works. Tom Cruise. Uh, he has some money. He decides he wants to get a prostitute. That prostitute steals something from his house, and um, now he. It's like, oh shit, I gotta make. Oh, Andy, Andy also, I think, wrecks his dad's Porsche or something like that, right? Oh, man, I don't remember. I think he does. Yeah. So he's in big time debt, and uh, so now he he gets back in contact with his hooker, and he's like, hey man, I need to, um, I need to uh, get this money back, and she's like, yeah, right. Like I'm a I'm a hooker. I'm not gonna give you a refund, right? And um, by the way, I'm going to eventually get to whitetail hunting here. Uh, he turns his <laughs> he turns his house into a whorehouse, and he finds a way to get that money 
You know, he's basically acting like a pimp and he's getting, he's finding a way to get that money back to him so he can fix the car and get the house back to normal. And I think there's like a, a crystal egg, a, like a really expensive crystal egg that um, has a role in this, uh, in this movie as well. And my, my uh, question to you is, so he, he's, he has to overcome at some point. He has to overcome some kind of doubt. He has to uh, financial or there's an obstacle in front of him. And whether that's maybe that obstacle is hunting pressure or hot weather or um, uh, what's another obstacle that uh, uh, whitetail hunters have to overcome on a on a, a season basis? Well, I think in a, in a career basis, the hardest to overcome is killing the first big buck. Yeah, Absolutely. That's a great point. Let's go from there. How do you kill your first big buck? Man, you struggle. Yes. So if you want me to relate this to risky business, yeah. <laughs> I'll I'll give it a hell of a go, man. Let's go. Let's try it. Because, hey, let's be honest. Hunting mature whitetails is kind of a risky business. It is. What, what a great, what a great <laughs> amount of hosting you just did right there. Right. Exactly. Uh, here's the thing. So let's, let's say hypothetically you're in that situation where you hire a prostitute, things go south, you want your money back, you crash your dad's Porsche, you gotta, you gotta, you need a big lump sum of money, right? Like whatever that sum is, there would be two trains of thought, right? The first would be, I want to get rich quick. How, what, where can I get a big score? Yeah. That'd be super risky and not very likely to work out, right? Like you walk into a bank with your little COVID mask on, maybe you'd walk out with enough cash, pretty risky. Or you could be like, can I can I build something that's going to turn a profit and start churning this money back to me? Yeah. It'd be safer, but it has to be a better idea, right? So in the hunting world, a lot of people have never killed a big buck. And let's just say just like for the purposes of this, a, a big buck's like 125-inch white tail. Yeah. Like that's just kind of ubiquitous across the country. Like that's that's not a small deer, no matter where you are. Most people haven't done that, and so I shouldn't say most. A good percentage of bow hunters haven't done that. Yeah. So they're going to be most prone to that get rich quick mentality. What can I buy? You're like, what call can you sell me? What you know, like, what's the strategy that the hunting public guys are going to show me that's going to guarantee me this deer, right? Yeah. Like, what's what's the the shortcut? But the people who've done this and got over that hurdle, which is not really that easy to do unless you have a banging spot to hunt, and even then it can be tough, is to build up to it. Like that, that, you know, like smaller profit but more consistent. And so I always look at that and go like, you you got to kind of like earn your way to that deer. A lot of people start out and they go, I want that big one right away. It's like you're not qualified. Like, yeah, you could do it. Like it's possible. But – as a hunter, you haven't earned your stripes yet. Like you don't really know what you're doing. So you got to start smaller. You got to learn to hunt deer. You got to kill some deer. Like right. you got to, you got to get this process down, learn how to act around them. And eventually you'll get that payoff. And man, when, what I see people struggle with in that process is like that, that first big one might be, you know, it might be four years. It might be 10. It might be 15. It, for me, it took, I think, 12, I, th- I think I was 
26 when I killed my first really big one yeah. where I was like, holy cow, it's possible. And I'd been bow hunting since I was 12. Right. And you, you're looking at years of no encounters with big ones, years of eventually like one encounter that, it, you know, you'd, you'd see them in the distance and then you'd get a shot and blow it or hit one and lose it and just like advancing in that direction. But really un, it's like understanding, like I have to play the long game for this great reward, but it will come. Yeah. And, and do you feel that that stair step mentality is one of the best ways to go about it and not necessarily hold out for, uh, this high, you know, the high caliber buck and it, it, like maybe this year I'll shoot a hundred incher next year. I'll shoot a one Oh five the year after that and stair step your way up. Or I, I guess it, a lot of it depends on what you're willing to sacrifice to get to that point. I mean, do you know any guys who are uh, now successful, but like they just, they took the other method, which was hold out until the big one comes. Not a lot of people who are doing it and on pressured deer. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, if you, if you have a good spot, you have the luxury of skipping a bunch of those steps, yeah. but that doesn't make you a good hunter. You know, like it, it might make you a successful hunter. Like you might be successful on killing big bucks, but could you replicate that anywhere else? Right. And Absolutely. if not, like it doesn't, you know, it, and I'm not knocking that, whatever, but I'm just saying like that doesn't, it doesn't transcend situations, right? right. Like that's very situationally specific. So the people I know who I'm just like, that guy can go get it done wherever. I think all of them stair-stepped it. And yeah. I, and I think we sell this process short, man. Like we look at it and go, we, we, we just jump to that dead big buck thing all the time, right? Like, how do I get a dead big buck? Like, how do I hunt mature bucks? Like blah, blah, blah. But what you don't take into account is like, all the little in the moment decisions you have to make from just how do you move when he's close and how do you, what, what, what is the timing of your draw? And like, where's the point of impact when that deer was standing broadside, then he turned a little bit to look at that other buck and then he put his head down and then he scratched his chin. Like all of that stuff comes from real world experience. And like you think, Oh, I, I can watch deer and get that. Or I can run some trip. You can't like, and if you're not, aiming at a deer and shooting at it and then blood trailing and then processing like you're, you're missing out on a part of that that's going to come back to haunt you at some point absolutely when you, when you have one that really like you really want this one like if you don't have that foundation built with all that other stuff over years of of doing it right and doing it wrong man it's tough yeah you explained it me exactly right from <laughs> no this is no joke man you ex you nailed what I, what I went through. And so I right off the gate, right. Whether, you know, you can say the whole Iowa thing and the pressure deer thing. I mean, I, I was, I've always been hunting farms that I, where I was not the only hunter I had, there was pressure. The amount of pressure varied, but I was not the only hunter. These are active farms with agriculture and uh, farming and, and all that stuff. However, I listened to in my opinion, to the wrong people. And I was passing whitetails that I should have shot and should have stair-stepped up. And for a handful of years, I ate my tag because the deer that I were hunting weren't, and I'm doing this with my, my, you know, air quotes, weren't big enough. So then what happened was when the buck that I'd been chasing for five years, 210 inch, nine year old steps out of uh, this cover, I draw back, I blacked out. Like I <laughs> dude, I was so shooken up 
that I don't even know. Like I thought I had him right behind the shoulder, 22 yard chip shot, Ugh. hit him high. Then he, he was eventually killed by the neighbor the next year that buck made the cover of North American whitetail. Oh. So what I'm getting at is everything that you just described, I can tell you experience wise that that might not be the best way to go about it because you know, like in the, and I, I've said this, I use this all the time, this, uh, this reference all the time, the, you know, the, once you win a championship at any sport, you need to act like you've been there before. Right. And yep. be modest and be humble. I didn't act like I've been there. I, like I did not act like I've been to a championship game before that buck showed out and I flipped the fuck out. And I, I, I screwed myself out of that scenario. And that wasn't the only buck that I did that on. Right. I would make a dumb mistake. Like I can remember a 180 inch 12 pointer coming right at me and he caught my, he caught my scent. And instead of me just maybe waiting for him to walk out and then making an adjustment on him, I grunted at him. I snort wheezed at him. I rattled at him. (laughs) I threw the kitchen sink at this buck and he never showed up on that farm again. Like he, I scared the shit out of him and he was gone. Right. Yep. So I'd never been to these type of scenarios before. And now I can, if I compare myself to that version, my current version of me is way more patient, way more observant, way more relaxed in the stand. I've watched the deer behavior. I've watched how they do the subtleties of, you know, maybe he's wind checking, maybe he's real comfortable. Maybe he's, his body language says he's stressed a little bit and I can, I'm able to make better decisions in the stand for that long-term because I've had that long-term, um, I guess you want to say, uh, that long-term investment into understanding deer. Yeah. Well, and understanding yourself, right? Exactly. Like, you know, I, I was just talking to a, a buddy of mine. He was asking about my, my little girls hunting and he's like, you know, how do they react? I'm like, man, it's so fun sitting in a blind next to them when you know a deer is coming because you hear their breathing just <gasps> like they and they don't know they're doing it like they're, they're totally unaware. And, it, you know, this happened to me on that bucket in North Dakota that was coming in. I mean, I looked up, glassed him. I was like, man, that is a great deer. And he is on a beeline for death. Like yeah. this is coming. And I'm sitting there just waiting and I can hear my freaking heart pounding in my ears. <laughs> and it, it's like one of those things where you're just like, you're just reminded, like, even though you think like, you got things under control, you, you, like, there's a lot going on that could, could tank this. Yeah. And it's, and it's all between your ears, right? Yeah. Like, you know, not all of it, but a, a good portion of it. And you, when you become aware of that and go, okay, like I, now I have to manage this. Like now I have to know, like, okay, I know this is going to happen to me. How do I just... How do I work with this? Because yeah. it's coming. Even yeah. in, and I think a lot of people don't admit, you know, and then that's part of buck fever, right? Like you just right. want it so bad. But a lot of people don't admit that they get that, like because they, in, like either either they don't want to because it's like a hit to the ego, or they honestly truly don't know that that's happening to them. But it is. Yeah, that's a fact. That's a fact. And I'll tell you, in the last five years specifically, I have been more comfortable around deer that I know I'm going to shoot. And that, that buck fever, it may not go all the way away, but it, it's reduced and almost controlled, right? So like yep. um, in the movie Risky Business, when uh, a real pimp shows up to his door and threatens him with, threatens him with a, a knife or a gun, you know, I think the first time 
that 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 happens in the movie he's all freaked out and he loses his mind but then i think it happens again and he's way more calm about it because he's been there before so i don't know the more time that i've been around deer and obviously and i'd love to hear your point on this that gets better as your your skill set goes up without question yeah and you go from you're when when you're originally starting out and you get whatever deer whatever caliber of deer it is you want to shoot there you're operating off of fear that it's going to get away right so you have this fear response like man i want to possess that so bad like that would that would make me so happy to kill that wrap my tag around it and possess it and when you get a bunch of experience and you blow those opportunities over years and years and years and you start to figure yourself out and figure the deer out you go from a place of fear during those encounters to a place of confidence and like shit still goes wrong. But when you're operating, like I know I can do this and I know I can read them and I got things working in my favor right now. You're not like, you're not sitting there just obsessively thinking like, Oh my God, I don't want him to get away. I don't want him to get away. Like I want to make this happen. I want to get the shot off. Instead. You're like, I'm going to let this unfold because this sucker's dead and he doesn't know it. Yeah. That's like, and you know, like you can slip, man, but when you get kind of cross that hurdle, a lot of times it happens when you have that just that watershed moment where you're like, I just killed a great big deer and it wasn't like, you know, it's, it's, it just happened. Like it was easy. He walked in, I shot him, he ran off. I watched him tip over and like, that's happened to me on other deer, but never that kind of deer. And when you, when you hit that point, you you've changed right. typically like right. you, you're moving in a direction that's just going to make you like, like you said, manage that those like, manage your physiology and manage what's going on a hell of a lot better than when you haven't done it. Right. Absolutely. Great point. All right. So now we have the, uh, the next movie. I'll pick this one. Cause I think we, I think we both know we want to do Top Gun last. Um, yeah, we gotta, we gotta the movie cocktail. Right. So in this movie, Tom Cruise he he's sick of the small town he's sick of working in his uncle i believe it's his uncle's bar uh he wants the limelight of the big city he wants the goal of owning this this awesome bar in the big city and he goes through the whole rigmarole of the movie of of trying to um be this popular uh you know this popular bartender and owning a, a big bar but eventually he ends up back home and he's back at back home and he has his goal and he's happy at this point translating this into the whitetail world do you think that our goals um and and when i mean goals i mean attaining happiness with our success and killing deer is closer than we think or do do we have to go out and try to achieve the quote-unquote limelight before we realize that hey man Maybe I'm not going to kill a 200-inch deer, but these 130s or these 120s will do just fine. Um, I think I think you got to just try a lot of stuff and put in the time until you learn what yeah. you really truly enjoy. Yeah, and I I think you know I mean that that analogy of you know falling in love with the, the idea of big city living and the you know whatever that comes with that. You know, we're, we're, we are just like so programmed to be, you know, the grass is always greener, right? My, my wife bitches at me all the time because I just operate on that wavelength where I'm like, if I had this or I did this, like I'd be happy. And it, in whitetail hunting, we do this 
all the time right. until you've done a bunch of stuff. And this is this is why, you know, when you're talking about going to Nebraska or South Dakota or doing some of these trips, I think this is why they're so important. Like even a turkey trip in the spring, you know, if you think you can't afford a deer trip or an elk trip, just seeing some other ground and and hunting a way that you might not hunt if you're on the, the farm you've had permission on forever, it just opens your eyes to what you really enjoy. You know, and there's to me, there's nothing more fun than going and spotting and stocking mule deer. I just I think it's a freaking blast. But right. some people, it's not their thing. They'd rather sit, you know, in, in a tree stand or whatever. But the more that you just try this stuff and the more you realize, like, OK, not only is this hunting method something that I just I wake up and I want to do it. You know, I want to go still hunting. I don't want to sit in a tree stand or whatever. Or, man, when I'm hunting one buck and I. You know, every deer I see is a disappointment. If it's not him, I don't enjoy it anymore. Yeah, like, stuff like that happens to you. I mean, that that's what happened to me. I, I had years where I really focused on trophies, and I had years where I knew of some deer that I wanted to go after, and I would just realize I'd have these moments where I'm like, "This is not, this is not doing it. I'm not enjoying this," and I and I want to be, and so you just go, "Okay, well, what's what's really important to me? Like, I, I want to have fun." You know, it, it may be if the end goal is a huge buck and that's the most important thing and that happens to people. OK, you know, go nuts for donuts. I don't care. But a lot of people, they don't really find their path to being like truly happy doing this stuff. And it just takes a lot of, yeah, you know, mess around a little bit. Try some different places. Try some different things and see what really blows the wind up your skirt and then do that because that's what you should be doing. Yeah. And I think that comes with like um, I always talk about the the levels of a hunter goes through throughout their career right where um I there's the you should be a, a brown it's down hunter and then maybe it's uh hey I want to shoot anything with antlers okay now I want to shoot any deer that's bigger than that year okay and then maybe I want to shoot uh and then you you stair step up until you get to the point where you're like it's only uh, a big buck that I have history with, or it's only, it's, it's this caliber or nothing. And then that goes to, Hey man, I've, maybe I've accomplished some of my goals. Happiness is me taking my kids out or happiness is me, um, just going out and watching these sunsets. And if a deer comes by, he comes by and the, the whole, not only does the goal change, but the mindset changes as well. Cause you realize that, and this is, this is for me that the the inches do not mean shit to me the 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 antler size on a deer i will go like i'm currently in a mature buck uh me going out trying to kill a mature buck if he's got big antlers that's awesome but i do not care i'm not making my decisions on a on a whitetail based off the inches of his antlers and that's that is that's that's what makes me happy right now. Someday I'll get out of that and I'll start doing I'll I'll start doing something else that makes me happy. Yep. Well, and you know when you talk about that, you're you're talking about your situation specifically at home, right? And that's one of the reasons why I, I think it's so fun to travel because yes. that what you've worked to at your home base. That's okay, yeah. but you might not take that on the road with you. No, absolutely not. And, you know, this is one of the things I, I talk a lot about. I, I love hunting Oklahoma, and it's because there's a lot of public land down there with a lot of deer, and they give you a lot of tags. And so when you go, you know, it, it, when I go or when my buddies and I go to Oklahoma, 
you know, we know we're going to be dealing with a, a high deer population, but they're pressured. You know, it's not like they're they're pushovers, but you're going to you're going to kind of slip back to that. It's brown. It's down like you're, you're filling the cooler situation and it's freaking fun, man. Yes. And it's really fun if you come from a long stretch of, you know, I'm, I know I have a chance at this buck or I know I have a chance at this caliber of buck where you're kind of like you're locked into that that big deer thing. And then you go do a hunt like that. You're like, this is, you feel free almost. Oh, it's yeah. just a different thing. And you kind of learn like, okay, I like both. You yeah. Know, we, we don't have to be, I think, I think the biggest problem I see with a lot of hunters is they do work into that specific mindset for their home spot and they take it on the road with them and it doesn't work out very well. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just ask you a straight up question about where you're at in your career what makes you happy when it comes to hunting hunting let's just let's just keep it in the world of whitetails what makes you happy there's there's a couple things that i really enjoy one is only taking shots that i'm like 100% confident in like i don't i don't want to shoot at a deer unless i believe in my heart of hearts like i'm going to smoke it like yeah. no question and I, I love that. And it, like a component to that is when it, it doesn't always work that way, but when it does, that gives me so much satisfaction. Like I just, I love doing that job perfectly. And then the next thing is the meat aspect. Like I, I know it's cliched, man, but I'm like, I'm so into a full freezer at the end of the year. Like I want to, I want my family to only eat wild game from you know, the day deer season ends till the day deer season starts. Yeah. Like I just, I freaking love that. Like it gives me a great source of pride. And like the last thing is I, I just want to feel like whatever I shoot, I, I, I worked for it. So like, I'll, as an example, last year in, I drew Iowa last year and I hunted public land in a kind of a, kind of a weird unit where it's like, doesn't get a lot of love. Cause it's not like down in the South and yeah. not in, not in the places where people typically go, but I just wanted my, I wanted to have an Iowa experience where I still felt like, man, I put in a fair amount to this, you know? And so I could, I could still, you know, keep standards fairly high cause it was Iowa and I didn't want to, I didn't want to burn out too early, but also just like whatever I shot, I wanted to be like, just, just look at it and go, damn, like even that, even in Iowa where, you know, like, you, you know, you talk about this all the time, like, oh, it's supposed to be easy. Like you can work your ass off down there and not kill one, yeah. you know? And so I just want to, I want to leave that season. Like I want to leave my season behind and look back on the deer I shot and go like every one of those, it took me something to get there. Yeah. Like they, it wasn't easy. And that, that part comes from being in the industry a long time and doing some of those media hunts where, you know, I've killed animals in my life where I'm like, I didn't burn a freaking calorie for this. Like this was just, <laughs> I mean, it just was an assassination, you know? And yeah. I'm not saying it's not fun. Like going down to Texas and hunting pigs or deer or whatever, that shit's fun, man. Yeah. But I don't, I don't look at like, you know, a euro amount of a buck I shot in Texas on a feeder that I did absolutely no work for. Yeah. The same way I look at, you know, other deer on my wall. Yeah. You know? So I just want, I just want that feeling for myself. Yeah. You want to know what makes me happy? What's that? That is, and it's more of a specific thing, and that is when my access route is so good and I get into a tree 
and my wind is doing exactly what I thought it was going to supposed to do. And my thermals were doing exactly what I, you know, I expected them to do. And the deer walk right by me without even knowing I'm there. That is like predator type. Like, <laughs> I mean, like, like not predator to the movie, but like I'm a predator, like the owl yep. sitting in the tree, watching the squirrels p- play below going, I could kick you. I could kill you right now. And you have no yep. clue that you would just, you'd feel a pinch and then you would black out like no, like that kind of thing. I don't know. That may sound demented, but that is the shit that I absolutely love when you pull one over on them, whether it's a, a fawn who's only six months old or whatever, or, you know, a, a whitetail that you decide you're going to shoot that moment when either you decide to pass them or you decide to let an arrow fly at them, which still isn't guaranteed, but yep. that moment right there for me, that is, that is, and then I get out of the stand, I go back to my truck and I'm just like, God, that was an awesome, awesome hunt. Yeah, dude, that, I'm glad you brought that up. That is such a good point. When you, when you execute, it feels like, and I yeah. don't mean shoot a deer. I mean, just execute your plan. It feels so good. I, I had a conversation with my, not the the first daughter that killed a deer, but the second one this year, we went out and I'm telling you, dude, I had for, for Northern Wisconsin, I we're hunting this little property, this little private property. And like two days before we got there, I had like three really good deer fighting in front of this camera, like it, good deer for anywhere, but exceptional for there. And, uh, you know, some other little bucks and stuff. And I was just like, so optimistic. And I tried not to, like I try not to pass that off too much on them because I don't want them to get like crazy unrealistic hopes, but I, I fail at that a lot. But anyway, we went in the first night, didn't see anything. And my daughter, when we were talking about it afterwards, she was like bummed. She's like, man, you know, like I thought we were going to shoot a deer and we didn't. And I was like, honey, we did everything perfectly. Like we hunted perfectly. It just didn't happen. And she's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, it's just what you're talking about there. Like, we, we parked where we were supposed to. We snuck in. We didn't make any noise getting in. We didn't spook anything. The wind worked for us. The deer did, just didn't come. Yeah. And I told her, I was like, if we keep hunting this way, you'll get your deer. Like, if we keep if we keep executing this way, you'll get your deer. And I, you're right, man. Like, that that feeling of doing like doing your job like exceptionally well, it's freaking badass. Yeah. And I'll say this. There are times, and even even last year, and this is something I'm personally going to work on as far as my strategy this year, is that execution that we just talked about is there's within that execution, there are moments of weakness where I decide, you know what? I shouldn't take the long way out of my stand. I'm just going to go right through the timber. I'm going to go right through the field. I'm going right to my truck, straight line in it. I, I shouldn't do that. Right. I need to execute on both sides of the hunt and do what I need to do and go out the back door, just like I came in the back door. And I think that's what happens when this is, this is kind of where we're going to transition to the next movie here, but where we have a, a moment of weakness mentally, and that, that potentially could have big impacts for the rest of the season. Yep. So, yep. Dude, it happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a constant fight. Yeah. Because, I mean, you're tired, right? You've been hunting however many days in a row, or or you've sat all day in an uncomfortable tree, 
right? And it just, I don't know. What you, let me ask you this. When it comes to your strategy, what is one thing that Tony Peterson struggles with or has like, what's your moment of weakness throughout the year? Like if you're going to be better at something, what do you wish you could be better at? Oh man, where do I even start with this? No, you, this is where you say, dude, I'm perfect. Like, uh, <laughs> I, I do not need. This knows that would be great. A bullshit. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the thing I'll, I'll tell you what I'm struggling with right now. Okay. And it's, it's a, it's a little, little devil on my shoulder all the time is, so I was the equipment editor for bow hunter magazine and bow hunter TV for 10 years. Yep. And it was a great gig. Like I, I loved working with those guys and I love the products we put out, but my job was to test gear. And I know like that sounds awesome, but on the bow side of things, I spent 10 years setting up bows and tuning bows and getting sent a bow for a week before a hunt and having to set it up and shoot it. And it, it just, what it, it taught me, like, I, I shouldn't say it taught me, it conditioned me to be uncomfortable with any one bow and to kind of like despise shooting because I had to do it for my job. I know that sounds like a weird bitch. Like that's a total first world problem, Yeah, but I, I carry that with me. I don't, I don't have those responsibilities anymore. I still have like some situations like that where, you know, like we're, we're sponsored by these guys. Like we got to get this bow in your hands now. And it's two weeks before a hunt or something. But what, it, what that time period of my life did for me is kind of made me like despise the process of being a really good, competent archer. And I'm trying to get back to that place where I enjoy shooting again and where I enjoy setting up bows and just like really paying attention to that crucial part of the equipment. Cause like I have, you know, like I have a press, like I have all the stuff I need to do that and I've done it quite a bit, but I hate the fact that I don't like it. And I, I like, you want to talk about taking shortcuts, like I don't want to do that work anymore. And it's, it's like childish and it hangs over my head. Cause I know like if you put a little more time into this, you'd be a better shot yeah. and you'd probably come around to enjoying it again. So like, that's a, that's like probably just like a very specific to me situation, yeah. but it's something that I think about it, it. I carry it all season long, man. Yeah. I agree with you a hundred percent. I, my opinion is in order to be a great, a great bow hunter, First off, you have to be a good archer, right? You have to, you, it, the, it all comes down to shooting a animal with a bow and an arrow, right? So you have to be good at that part of it, you know, and then you can, you can teach yourself how to do all the strategy and identifying sign and terrain and blah, 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 all that stuff, right? For me, that's one thing that I just like, I'm completely okay with taking my bow to a bow shop and working with them to get my bow tuned up. Like it may sound it it may sound shitty, but I don't have any interest in being a bow tech. Like I want someone to help me do it and that's how I don't know. Does that does that make me sound like a piece of shit? No, I mean that's most people. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I don't either. Yeah. But I feel obligated <laughs> to do it. Right. You know, like I, I fantasize about taking my bows to a pro shop and dropping them off, man. Like, but I, that's just one part. And it, it, a, a bigger part of that for me is just the, sh the shooting aspect. Like yeah. I used to love to shoot bows 
and I struggle with that now. Yeah. You know, and I, th- I think that's something that's probably way more relatable is I think a lot of people don't, they don't get to a point where they love the flight of the arrow. Yeah. You know, or yeah. they're, you know, they're really hooked on that process. And so that, that it's kind of like a, a necessary evil of being a bow hunter. Like, yeah, you got to practice some, but it's also why you see so many people, you know, at the range on September 1st, but not on June 1st. Yeah. And why so many people, you know, that could, that could shoot competently enough, can't hit a bull elk at 20 yards or can't hit a whitetail at 20 yards. And it's because that muscle memory isn't there. And that comfort level from being just, just being a happy, competent shooter isn't there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's something that I'm, I'm trying to work on right now. And that's why this year, and I mentioned this on one of the hunting gear podcasts that I did recently, but the, there is something fun about shooting a, uh, a bow, but there's something really fun about shooting a well-tuned bow. And I, I went through those extra steps at the bow shop this year where, all right, well, the cams are not perfectly timed we want them perfectly timed so i spent the extra time doing that i paper tuned my bow this year adjusted you know had to readjust the the kisser button and and the peep sight and adjust the sights and do all of that stuff in order to get it you know flinging rockets now that it's doing that my time on the range is way more fun because when you're accurate and you know you're gonna be accurate you want to shoot more yep so dude big time yeah and that's you know what that reminds me of, because uh, I, I think a lot of people don't realize that this is a possibility, right? Like you, you get a bow, a new bow, or you buy a used bow, or whatever, get it set up for yourself, and then you know a season goes by, and two seasons go by, and three seasons go by, and you don't really think like there might be a little string stretch or string yeah. and cable stretch there, or you know you've been knocking this stuff around a little bit, and like you said, you know the timing of your cams is a little bit off, or the drop away cord on your rest has moved a little bit or something little, little attrition or little movements like that. It's like, you know, when you train a dog and you, you start to get a little bit lazy and you let, you know, instead of having the dog deliver right to hand, you kind of like, Oh, you know, he dropped it at my feet. That's good enough. Like that shit only goes in reverse, man. Like it never, it never just suddenly gets better, but you learn to live with it. And then at some point, you know, that dog brings you a rooster that's still got his legs under him and he drops it at your feet and it runs away and you go, Jesus, that was stupid. <laughs> like at some point you go out there and you're like, this bow shoots good enough. And then yeah. you get that shot that's like right at the max end of your effective range and you freaking blow it. Yeah. And it's because your peep sight is a quarter inch higher than it used to be. And now you don't even think about it. You draw back and you adjust that to your eye. And you have no idea that your point of impact has all of a sudden changed and your elevation is going to be way off. That stuff comes into play and it's not good. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I don't want to go over the, we, so in risky, in risky business, we, we, we talked about overcoming an obstacle, right? Trying to, trying to uh, kill that first big buck. But in Top Gun, we have a guy who's really confident. You know, he's cocky, right? And then he goes through a, a, a mental breakdown, right? While he's driving, a, flying a jet, right? And it's a time where you you probably shouldn't be going through uh, a mental breakdown as you're flying Mach 1, you know, over top of uh, populated cities and things like that. Is, is this is this where should we, where should we, we, yeah, is this where we should take Top Gun, or is there another direction we should take Top Gun? 
because obviously there's the the iconic beach volleyball scene where there's a bunch of dudes and we already talked about you know one step away from gay porn and predator um <laughs> look you're talking like just a uh smidgen away from gay porn in that in yeah. that beach volleyball scene yeah like and there's even a shower scene after it right so it's like it's even it's even way closer to that ending up in that than than predator so i don't think we should go there okay. uh, <laughs> <laughs> i don't oh, think shit. that's I don't that's think not the direction we want to go for deer hunting. i don't know maybe, okay. maybe you see something coming i don't all right let's talk about how sweaty men can relate to a whitetail strategy. Let's not go there. I just said it out. What sometimes you just got to say it out loud to know whether or not you want to do it. I don't want to do that. Okay. Um, uh, so maybe, maybe the, the point where, okay. So I, I look at this, I see overconfidence. I see, you know, the, the, the main character, he's arrogant. He's overconfident. Um, he's really good at what he does. And then he has some kind of breakdown where maybe he realizes, I don't know, he's not as good as he thinks he is, and he he blows it, and he ends up killing his best friend because of it. So, um, how 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 do we approach this? Do we do we go in the direction of ment like mentally being mentally stable? Well, we could. I mean, we could we could just start with overconfidence. Here. Yeah, because it's it exists, man. Like. I, let me give you an example of an absolute dipshit that I ran into one time who was way overconfident and in, he did not do very well out there. Okay. So I was hunting. There was, I think it was, uh, I think I had two buddies with me and we were in North Dakota. This was years ago. And, you know, we're, we're in camp, whatever, you know, sometimes people come over and they talk to you and, Happens there quite a bit because there's there's residents who draw this once in a lifetime elk tag. So a lot of people kind of swing in like, hey, you see any bulls, see any cows, whatever. But, you know, the, the fellow deer hunters will swing over, too. And we were in camp and these two guys came in and they were. How do I put this? Pricks. The, <laughs> I don't want to offend everybody, but I might anyway. Uh the one guy had the bedazzled jeans and mm -hmm. cowboy boots on and like frosted tips. And he was, he lives in like a rich suburb of the twin cities. That's as far as I'll go with that. I was like, bro, you don't need cowboy boots on. Like what? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, anyway, uh, they started talking to us and you know, we, they're, they're hunting the same white tails we are. Right. So they're, we're all down on the river bottom together. And these guys have shit tons of gear. They've got kayaks for the river. And this is a river, by the way, that you could, you know, walk across in knee-high boots everywhere and not get your socks wet. Okay. They, you know, they've got all of this stuff. And we're talking to them, and it's 200-inch buck this and 200-inch buck, and we have this lease here, and, you know, we're looking for bucks of this size. And just, like, not my crowd, right? The douchebag. So every time you see him coming, you're like, Jesus Christ, I hope these guys don't come into camp. The douchebag button was pushed. Like, you didn't even have to say anything. You're just like, oh, geez, I have to talk to these Dude, people. Horrible. <laughs> Hor it's like my nightmare. And it, when we get into those situations, I have, like, telepathy with my hunting partners. Yeah. Where I'm like, you son of a bitches, do not tell these guys that I'm in the hunting industry. Yeah. Because those are the guys who, like, want to be your buddy. And... <laughs> 
and my buddies know, like, if I want any free hunting gear or anything, I'm going to keep my mouth shut because Tony will cut me off. <laughs> so, anyway, these guys have 10 days to hunt. And I think, I think this was right when I had two little tiny babies at home. Yeah. It was when the girls were really young. So I had a short hunt, like four days or something. And anyway, these guys had 10 days. They bailed. They came in and told us when they were leaving after four days, they couldn't find a deer. And they were trying to run trail cameras on this these crossings and kayak up and down this river. I'm like, dude, you're in western North Dakota. Climb up on a bluff and glass. Yeah. Like you can see for miles. But these guys were so confident because they kind of identified with this badass trophy hunting lifestyle, but they were no good at it. Like they couldn't find any deer, yeah. let alone deer they wouldn't shoot. And I just saw that. I was like, these are guys who got into a situation who believed the idea that they were really something special and that this was going to be easy because it was a Western whitetail thing. Yeah. And they were so overconfident and they left six days early with their tail between their legs. Dude, you just nailed it. You just nailed it. Tom Cruise goes into top gun school thinking he's going to be the top gun. And guess what? He's not the top gun. Boom. God, there's the connection. There we go. There we go. Jesus, I'm, I knew I had you on the, this podcast for a reason. Uh, <laughs> so, um, dude, and that happens all the time. I, I ran into the same guy, not the same guys, right? But the same guys who just decked out, just decked out, ex very expensive truck, wearing very expensive camo, all, you know, and here we are walking out of the, you know, actually walking out of the 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 public back to our camp and they're just driving roads right like yep. what are you doing you're not you know you look good you could you're handsome you could be in a cover shoot but you're not going to get any blood on your hands during this trip if you don't change what you're doing so yeah yeah do you well, that, go ahead yeah uh, that that that's a that's a side note bitch for me there yeah that road hunting thing so I don't know, I, I've only hunted Iowa a couple of times, so I don't know what your experience is with this, but it's so interesting to me because w when we were out there just on this most recent trip in North Dakota, but every time I've ever traveled, most of the hunting I see seems to be road hunting. Yeah. Like, especially if there's some kind of gun season open. And I, it's funny because, you know, people are always like, well, my state's the hardest. Like we have the best hunters. My state's the hardest. You know, we have the toughest deer to hunt. So we have the best hunters. I'm like, man, everywhere I go, it looks like like 70% of the population is trying to kill their deer from the, like the ditch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to say this, I 100% agree with that strategy for those people. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you keep, you keep road hunting and I'll like, you can't road hunt where I live. You might be able to, but number one, Iowa is less than 2% public land. So by the time you see a deer in a field, then you have to go find the landowner, which is probably possible because everybody has a, a hunting app on their phone, knock on their door, get permission, which most of the time you're not going to in Iowa. Yeah. And number two, where I hunt, a lot of ground, I mean, Yes, it's it's miles upon miles, but where I hunt, there's still tree lines, and it's not like South Dakota where you can see forever and then make a move on them. You can't do that 
in certain spots. So what you're trying to do is watch deer basically cross a road and the odds of you even finding that is it's very low. Yeah. Yeah. The odds of turning that into a field tag, a legal field tag. Exactly. Legal's the operative word there. So, um, the, the other part of that is like, okay, so you go in overconfident, you get knocked down because you realize, holy shit, I went in overconfident. My strategy doesn't work. My gear, it doesn't matter what my gear is. If I don't have the, the mental capacity to make sound decisions, right? Then you have to go through this, this mental rebuild of, okay, I need to fix whatever I have broken here. How, how would you go about that? Like short-term relearning your, your strategy. If that's even possible. Well, I think maybe, maybe this isn't the right way to answer this, but I just think that part of the part of the reason that experience matters so much is you get comfortable with failure. Yeah. Like you just if you it, I'll tell you what. I So I didn't grow up gun hunting. You know, I, I only grew up bow hunting. That's all my dad did. And we didn't have that, you know, typical go to the cabin in the North woods and everybody rifle hunts or whatever. Like it, it was just always bow hunting and we were not good at it. And so I remember I was probably 14 or 15 and I remember just, just breaking down and being like, I don't want to freaking hunt anymore. Like I'm so sick of not seeing deer and getting up in the morning and, you know, burning every night and just not, not even like, it wasn't like I was even getting shots or anything. A lot of times it was just like, I'm not seeing anything for days on end. I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I remember talking to my dad about it. He's like, don't, he's like, just don't do it. He's like, you want to, you want to sight in one of our shotguns and go slug hunt, go ahead. And I remember thinking like, that's what I want to do. That'll be way easier. And then after a couple of days of not hunting, I was like, Oh, I just kind of want to go hunting again. Like I just, I just, I would rather be there and fail than not. And it's still like, you know, there's times I have times now where I'm like, this does not freaking feel worth it. Like I'm not, I'm not having fun with it, but I just know that'll pass and, and it'll, it'll come around again. And a lot of times it's a matter of just, just do something, you know, you're going to enjoy, like go sit somewhere. Like you're real happy to be there and just shake that shit off, you know, cause it, it, it'll feed itself if you don't. And I think, I think a lot of people, they don't stick around long enough to get to a place where they know like this is gonna this will go away this will fade and i can i can keep doing this thing that i really really love and not you know like not say no to it yeah great point great point i, I tell, i'll tell you this it, it is a it's a humbling humbling experience because i've i've been there before where not necessarily with anybody per se but by myself going in and being like this is this this sets lock tight i i know he did it yesterday i got trail camera pictures of him doing whatever the same day in a row going in there and then getting busted and then you're just like jesus like you're so confident you're blinded by maybe some extra details that you know that that you may have missed and then then you you basically walk out of you're you're I don't know if you've ever been here, but embarrassed of yourself for making oh such a shitty decision. 
dude, you, you have no idea. Yeah. 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 And that's when you I, get, that's when you get on your Kawasaki or whatever, uh, crotch rockety drives and you have a montage, right? You have yeah. a, just a good old fashioned montage where you reflect on yourself and you say, <laughs> you know what? I need, I'm better than this. And then you come back and you, then you, then you shoot your Russians. That's exactly what I do. <laughs> I play a little beach volleyball. I hop on my crotch rocket. I let the wind blow through my hair. Sunset. Just a reset moment. Yeah. God damn. That's a great, such a great movie. Such a great yeah. movie. Oh. Well, anything else that we need to talk about in, in reference to these movies or mentally? Like, let, let's, let's stick with mental for a second. Like, what about getting worn out? Like, it's the end of a hunt. Or it's been a long, it's been a long hunt and you're looking to do the, you know, you're just like fatigued mentally. Um, how do you, how do you get past that? Um, once in a while I just sleep in Yeah. and just, you know, this, this happens elk hunting once in a while too, where you're like on day seven or eight and you're like, oh my God, I just need the rest. Yeah. You know, but that's, I mean, that's a physical exhaustion thing. The, the mental thing is it's a rough one man and i i've kind of learned you know because it, it used to be way easier for me to be like i'm not i'm i'm sleeping in tomorrow or i'm not gonna sit very long tonight i'm gonna go out later than i probably should and just just to like kind of chip away at the actual time you're out there and i'm to a point now where i just don't want to miss it and yeah. so even even when i start to get you know, kind of like mentally beat down where I'm like, Oh, this, this kind of sucks. Like I don't have a lot of confidence tomorrow. You know, I might drop my standards or I might do something a little bit different, but I'm going to go. And I know it, that's because kind of came from a lot of turkey hunting and a lot of smallmouth fishing where, you know, like if you're not there at sunrise, you're missing out. Right. Right. Like in the whitetail world, you know, yeah, you want to be out there at sunrise, but if it's a rut hunt, you know, if you sleep in till you know, 10 in the morning or, you know, you sleep in and then you go out at like 10, you could still have a great day, but you know, you miss that window with turkeys gobbling on the roost and stuff. Like you're not getting that back for the day. No. Like you just, it's gone. And you know, like some of the smallmouth fishing I like to do, man, if you like a, a good topwater bite that when that sun's just coming up, that's when it's probably going to be the the best and missing that, like I regret it. Like I know, like even as as tired as I am or as worn out as I am, I'm like, oh man, I don't I don't want to freaking miss that because you're only gonna get so many of them. And in the whitetail world, I kind of I like I've kind of migrated that over where I'm like, man, I get I get wore down. Like I get sick of it where I'm like, man, I just want to go chase pheasants or just not be in a tree. But I also know, like, man, it's when it that's gone, you really freaking miss it. Yeah. And so it's like, I kind of try to tell myself that a lot. Like, yeah, you, you might want to give up now, but you know how you're going to feel if you do. So just don't like, yeah. just figure out a way, go sit somewhere different or go do something different. Wait for it to rain and go sneak around, try to shoot one, do something to just stay out there. And then usually you can get over that shit. Yeah. That's a fact, man. That's a fact. Oh, by the way, uh, small mouth are literally my favorite fish to fish and catch. I love it. <laughs> period kind of sense. buddy if i got a deal for you if you ever want to catch some big ones then hey hey let's talk after so <laughs> can't give away those spots man um tony any final thoughts any final words on today's episode about tom cruise uh 
man, I just wish he hadn't gotten so preachy and so into Scientology. Amen. Amen. <laughs> That's the only thing. That's my only complaint yeah. about Tom Cruise. He he had it all, I feel, yep. and then he, he threw it away. <laughs> I well, I wouldn't say he threw it away. I think he's still doing pretty well. Yeah, he's doing uh, pretty well. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I don't think he's suffering too much. But he's not. But. He's not. He's not Top Gun Tom Cruise anymore. No, no, that's and he, true. And I don't think he can ever recover from that. That's true. So. Tony Peterson, as always, man, I really appreciate you uh, taking time out of your day to hop on and uh, talk nonsense with us a little bit. So thank you uh, for that, and uh, good luck in your upcoming hunts, man. Awesome. Thanks, buddy. Good luck to you, too. Well, if you made it this far in the podcast, I just want to say thank you for listening to the entire episode. Huge shout-out to Tony for for continuing to do these episodes. So a huge shout out to him. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day to download and listen. Please go to iTunes, leave a five-star review. Um, that I would appreciate that. Follow on Instagram, follow on uh, Facebook, social. Make sure you're subscribed to the uh, Sportsman's Nation YouTube channel. And other than that, man, uh, keep grinding. The season is just going to get better from here on out. Uh, don't believe the October lull. Just get out there and hunt. And uh, good luck. I'm sending good vibes out to all of you. And uh, wear your safety harness and hunt safe. Make sure things are taken care of at home, and we'll talk to you next week.